Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. Let's stand as we read God's Word, Isaiah 53, and we'll begin in verse number one. The Holy Spirit says, who has believed what they have heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit found in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You may be seated. On December the 10th and the 12th, there were 58 tornadoes that ravaged the Midwest, starting in Arkansas, Missouri, going through southern Illinois into the great, wonderful state of Kentucky. Uh, Maybe you've heard about the devastation that took place in my home state. Um, 76 people lost their lives, one of the great natural disasters that has happened in the state. But maybe you're familiar with towns like Dawson Springs or Berman. Maybe you're not familiar with those, but maybe you've heard of the town of Mayfield. Mayfield is western Kentucky, and Mayfield probably took one of the greatest direct hits from the tornado. And so maybe some of you also heard about the candle factory that was completely demolished because of the tornado. You'll see the picture behind me of the devastation. On one side, you'll see the building, what it was before, and then on the other, you'll see the aftermath of it. Well, there was particular stories of 
of, of great bravery and also stories of great rescue. And one particular story of great rescue was a lady by the name of Kiana Perez. Kiana was working at that factory that evening that the tornado went through and she was interviewed on MSNBC and here's what she said. She said, the next thing you know, there was a great gush of wind. My ears began to pop and then boom, everything fell on us. We were completely trapped at once. I was pinned down between a water fountain and an air conditioning unit. I was so afraid. I, I couldn't feel my legs. I started praying. As a matter of fact, she, went, she couldn't get through to 911, and so she went to Facebook Live. And there, nothing but all you could see is just darkness. She was crying out to the Lord and crying out for help. She said, I, she said God, don't let me die on my birthday. Then a guy named Gary came to her rescue. He said that she was buried five feet under the debris, but he said he would get me out. Then she continued. She said, I was, I was one of the last people out. Once I got out of there, I couldn't do anything but thank God. I am thankful that I was saved. It's unbelievable that anyone would walk away from there. It's God's grace and mercy that saved me out. You know, as great of a rescue and great of a salvation as that was for Kiana on December the 10th, there's a greater salvation that we're gonna talk about this morning. It is a greater salvation and a greater savior. It is the reason why we celebrate Christmas. Isaiah the prophet has been writing to the people of God, and he's a prophet writing 700 years before Christmas Day. He was writing during dark, difficult, confusing days. His prophecy of the future Messiah included a son that would be given, a sovereign who would be born from a dead stump, and today now a savior who is a suffering servant. This, this thought of a suffering servant is introduced in Isaiah 42 where God says, behold my servant, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by my hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison those who sit in darkness. In Isaiah 49, verses six and seven, God says that this servant will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Well, this servant, this suffering servant, is none other than Jesus Christ. And he is the reason, and this is the reason why the angels saying so magnificently, magnificently to the shepherds as they were glorifying God. And as they shared that great news, they said to the shepherds that we have good news of great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Man needed a Savior. Man didn't need an economist. Man didn't need a politician. Man didn't need an educator. Man didn't need an entertainer. Man didn't need a philanthropist. What man needed was a savior. And God sent us the very best. And so as we look here at maybe some strange passages before Christmas, we're going to see the very heart of Christmas in this text. Isaiah is going to teach us that our rebellion against God led to Jesus' rejection. 
But Jesus's substitution for our rebellion leads to our salvation. Number one, our rebellion led to his rejection. Verse one, Isaiah asks two rhetorical questions. Who has believed us and to who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The answer to these questions is scarcely anyone. Isaiah has spent 12 chapters indicting not only the nation of Judah, but the nations around Judah for their wickedness. And now he has predicting and promising God's great deliverance. The bad news of evil and sin and wickedness is only that backdrop that makes the good news of God's deliverance even brighter. And yet, even though God has spoken through the prophet Isaiah and other prophets to speak of the wickedness of God's people and the great deliverance of God that is to come, scarcely anyone believed it. As a matter of fact, Paul will use these verses in Romans 10, 16, when he speaks about the unbelief of the people of Israel. He will also say that faith comes by hearing. And so here's what you have to understand. If the Holy Spirit does not reveal gospel truths to the hearer, the person will never be able to believe them. You know, I shared this last night, but if you really think of the Christmas story, if you really think of uh, Easter, if you think of just the whole uh, truths of Christianity that we hold on to dearly, it sounds kind of strange. It sounds somewhat mythological, and it sounds for most of us to be unbelievable. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Well, what makes the difference? Jesus makes the difference. And so Isaiah here tells us what this arm of the Lord is. It is God's powerful saving arm that enters into human history through a suffering servant who would be rejected by his people in unbelief. Isaiah will then tell us in this chapter why there is so much unbelief. He will tell us why so many people can hear the Christmas message, can hear the gospel stories, and still reject the Christ of Christmas. There will be billions of people all around our world who will in some way, shape, form, or fashion celebrate Christmas, but many of them will not be changed by the Christ of Christmas. How is it that you can be surrounded by comfort and joy and yet not know the comforter and the joy giver? Well, the first answer is rebellion. Verse six, we all like sheep have gone astray. God created all people for his glory. Isaiah 43, verse seven, God says, I created for my glory whom I have formed and who I have made. God is our creator. He is the universe's sustainer. He has a perfect, complete design. He knows exactly how your life should be. He has intricately and wonderfully made you so that you can glorify him and enjoy him forever. And yet all of us, like sheep, have turned away from him. Every one of us, all of you in this room, all seven billion plus people around the world have each and every one of us turned to our own way. This is the condition of the entire world. Our entire world is in rebellion against our maker because we believe that our way is better than God's way. Both our pride and our prejudice attempts to dethrone God in our lives so that we can live our lives the way we want to live. We were all born with a desire to focus on me. 
Brian Regan says that we are me monsters. We want to make the rules. We want to take glory for ourselves. And we want to use our lives to direct others' attention towards us. We want every conversation to be about us. Many of you have probably been in great conversations that were me deep in conversation. We want to be acknowledged for all that we do. We want people to give us accolades and attaboys. We, we feel that we are owed everything that we have in life and are entitled to everything that we have. The question I want to ask you is, what's wrong with us? Why are we like the Rolling Stones and cannot, cannot get no satisfaction? How is it that we can experience the luxuries of our lifestyle and, and, and experience the, the, the seasons that, that we're in and, and this moment in life and that we have so many great blessings and how is it that you can be as successful as possible and yet you're never satisfied? Why is it that we feel so broken? Why are we so prone to addiction, to anger, to lust, and to laziness? Popular psychologists will tell you that the reason why we are the way we are is environment. Our environment is the combination of both the circumstances and the conditions of our lives, and that the environment causes us to bend towards destructive behavior. To those secular psychologists, my question to you is this, how many kids do you have? And here's the question I would ask, was it their environment or did they just come out that way? Listen, I don't have a TV show with 30 kids, but I do have three. Each of my children are wonderful, unique, distinct. They're all raised the same. They're all different, but they're all evil. (laughs) And you wanna know where they got it from? Their mother and me. You don't believe me? Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. (laughs) We were born this way. We're natural-born rebels bent towards sin. Baby, we were born to run. Now, does environment play a role? Yes, it does. If you have a bent towards certain sins, lust, laziness, anger, greed, your environment is like throwing lighter fluid on the fire. Our environment can make our bent towards a particular sin even worse, but yet we are all born thinking that we are smarter than God. We are all born hoping and trusting in ourselves rather than trusting in God. And we think that we have life figured out. We think that our ways are better than God's ways, that we know what's best for our relationships, for our families, for our sex life, for our money, and for our religion. We want things to go our way, and we want things to be set up so that we are the gods of our lives. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. And what this leads to is it leads to brokenness. When you seek to be your own God, you will see that you are a very crummy God. And you will be looking for a way to save yourself. Rather than following God's way, you'll follow your way and it just leads to more brokenness. 
You will try self-help. You will try sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You will try this, that, and the other, and it will lead you to the same way that everything else led you down a highway to hell. But you would rather go your way than God's way. It's rebellion, but not only rebellion, but rejection. Verses two and three. Why is it that people reject the Christmas message? Why do they reject the Christ of Christianity? Not only rebellion, but rejection. Verses two and three, he says here towards the end, he has no, this is Jesus, the suffering servant, had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. We are so vain. We are so superficial. All of us in this room struggle with judging by appearances. Remember last week, I told you that Jesus does not judge based on his five senses. See, Jesus didn't try to impress anybody. He, he, he didn't respect false appearances. But, but yet, he himself entered into this world as an unpromising person appearing in a failed nation to an unwed young girl. Jesus didn't come into this world the way that we would expect. He didn't come in beauty. He didn't come in power. He didn't come in majesty. He came humbly. He came simply. And he came strangely. He didn't look the part. As a matter of fact, Richard Neves, who is a uh, medical artist from Manchester, England, a few years ago, um, kind of broke the internet when he put his depiction of what he believed Jesus would have looked like. As a matter of fact, uh, he did this based on extensive research. If you'll note here, Jesus in Richard Neve's depiction did not have long flowing hair, blue eyes, or white skin. He didn't look like Fabio. <laughs> according to Richard Neve, and according to just understanding that day, ancient Palestine, uh, just examining the size of the people of that day, Jesus probably more than likely was five foot one, 110 pounds, very dark skin, brown eyes, curly hair with a beard. He's not the Jesus that you maybe have in your mind. See, Jesus is rejected both then and now because Jesus is not what we're looking for. Surely we love the baby in the manger, but we do not like the man. Because Jesus' style, demeanor, views of life are different than the world. Jesus' teaching cut against the grain of culture and even our own human nature. Now, surely, yes, we know that even to this day, our world loves versions of Jesus. They love the Republican Jesus, who's against taxes, and who's pro-military. They love the Democrat Jesus, who is very inclusive and tolerant. They love the Starbucks Jesus, who will sit there and hang out with you all day long, drinking a cup of joe at a reasonable price. <laughs> they love the sloppy, wet kiss Jesus, who will just ooey-gooey you all the way to heaven but we don't love the Jesus of the Bible because the Jesus of the Bible cuts at the very heart of who we are. If you say in your entire life that when you've read the Bible that Jesus has never led you to feel convicted, 
that he has never contradicted you, you're not reading the Jesus of the Bible. Because if you are in his presence, you will be convicted of your sins. And if you hear his words, it will be counter to the ambitions of your soul. Because the real Jesus contradicts our sinful, rebellious hearts. See, we reject Jesus because nothing Jesus ever said and nothing Jesus ever endorsed or did endorsed our sin and rebellion. John Piper says, we don't feel endorsed around Jesus. He is so lowly and unimpressive that our aspirations for power and reputation feel evil. His happy poverty makes our wanting more and more feel foolish. His willingness to suffer for others makes our craving for comforts feel selfish. See, it's our rebellion that leads to his rejection. But then secondly, his substitution leads to our salvation. That's what the crux of Christmas is. Were there no rebellion and rejection, there would be no need for Christmas. And the reason why is this, is that a holy God cannot and does not allow rebellion to go unpunished. Just as a just judge must adjudicate and meet the demands of justice, so God must as well. God has an infinitely holy, infinite holy hatred towards sin. His holy judgment and wrath is infinitely set against sin and evil. Now you say, how is it that God can be so infinitely upset, infinitely offended by one simple offense? How is it that one simple offense could mean an eternity of infinite punishment. Well, let me just give you an example. You've probably heard this before. This isn't unique with me, but I'll give you this example. Let's just say that after the service, I punched Kevin Taylor in the face. <laughs> what do you think he would do? Well, I'm his boss, and so, well, he maybe would punch me back, right? Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and as Fred Sanford said, in a baseball bat's where it's at. Some of you get that reference, some of you don't. Let the hearer hear. Let's say after the service, I get even more froggy and I go into town and, and I see one of Collier County's finest, police officer, sheriff's deputy, and I come up to him and I punch him in the face. What do you think they'll do to me? Well, they'll put me in the pokey. They'll put me in jail, right? Probably get tased and put in pr prison. Well, let's just imagine, now this isn't political, and I don't want anybody to get political with this. Let's just imagine that after that, I just get really froggy, and I drive to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., and I punch the President of the United States in the face. What do you think they'll do to me? They'll put me in the morgue, <laughs> right? Now, what's the difference between me punching Kevin and me punching a president? The person, right? The person, the position. Well, just as... I would deserve a just judgment for punching the president of the United States. And just as that would be bad, offending a holy God is infinitely worse than punching the president of the United States in the face. And so for us to just say, well, that isn't fair, the punishment doesn't fit the crime, you don't understand how holy God is. And so the question is this. How could a holy God destroy sin and evil without destroying you and me.
It's a dilemma, right? The answer is substitution. See, Jesus came as our suffering servant. He says in 52.13, behold my servant. Isaiah here in speaking of this suffering servant is not talking about the people of God. He's not talking about the nation of Israel. He's talking about the Lamb of God. Isaiah here is not talking about himself, the suffering servant. Isaiah is not the suffering servant. He's speaking about the God-man. Seven times in the New Testament, Isaiah 53 is quoted. Each and every one of them is a reference to Jesus. Even Philip, when he met the Ethiopian eunuch out on the highway and byway, when the Ethiopian eunuch was reading Isaiah 53, the Bible says that Philip, when he got to that text, opened his mouth and spoke only of Jesus. For those of you that are prophecy nuts, of all Isaiah's messianic prophecies that point to the future, all of them, with the exception really of this one, have an immediate fulfillment and an ultimate fulfillment. This prophecy of the suffering servant only has an ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Jesus is the personification of the suffering servant of Isaiah. That even Jesus himself said this in John 10, 45. He says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to do what? To serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus is the suffering servant that serves us by giving his life for our life. You want to know the gospel in a nutshell? If you've got a pencil or a pen or a piece of paper, write this down. Here is the essence and the heart of the gospel. Jesus in my place. I am the sinner. As you read verses four through six, you'll see these personal pronouns. Are, O-U-R, we or us. It is our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities, our chastisement. We have gone astray. We have turned away, each to his own way. The iniquity of us all. We are the sinners, and yet Jesus is a substitute. As you read those verses, he is the one that is stricken. He is bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, stricken, smitten, afflicted, wounded, crushed, and it was laid on him. He got what we deserve. See, instead of collapsing in grief over our rejection, he bears our griefs. Instead of increasing our sorrows, he carries our sorrows. Instead of avenging our transgressions, he is pierced for our transgressions in our place. Instead of, being, instead of crushing us for our iniquities, he is crushed for them as our substitute. All the chastisement, all the beatings that belong to us for our rebellion, he takes on himself so that we may have the peace of God and be healed. And that's why Paul says in that great verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, in the great exchange, so he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Melito, the bishop of Sardis in the second century, wrote the following. He who hung the earth is hanging. He who fixed the heavens has been fixed. He who fastened the universe has been fastened to a tree. Oh, unprecedented murder, unprecedented crime. The sovereign has been made unrecognizable by his naked body. And it is not even a garment to keep him from view. That is why the lights of heaven turned away and the day was darkened. In verses seven through nine, it says that he was oppressed. He was afflicted. He did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. We are sheep that run astray, but he's a lamb that goes to the slaughter. 
The Bible says that he was silent. The old spiritual song, he never said a mumbling word. He never did. He went there. He was silent before his accusers. Jesus' death and his silence was not a sign of weakness, but an exercise of deliberate control. Jesus was not overpowered, but he chose to fight back. He took on our punishment and our guilt in silence. He died receiving himself the very silence of God. Tim Keller says this, that on the cross, God the Father treated the sinless son as if he was a sinner and punished him in the place of the lawbreakers. All our sins were transferred to Jesus as he hung and died on the cross. Jesus received on the cross what we should have received. He doesn't feel forsaken. He is forsaken. He doesn't feel alone. He is alone. God's wrath is poured upon him as the substitute for our sin. See, here's what you have to understand. I know some of you are like, Pastor, this is supposed to be like a sweet sermon. And this is a stinky sermon. We love the Savior born in Bethlehem. But this is how he saves us. You know, nobody likes to see how the sausage is made. We just want to eat. We just want to have the sausage. Well, for you to understand how sweet the Savior is, you have to know what the Savior did. He took your place. All the wrong, all the bad, all the evil you've ever done, Jesus was punished for. And all the good and all the righteousness and all the greatness that he is, is credited to your account. What did Jesus' substitution do for us? It satisfied the will of the Father. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord. God's perfect will was carried out in sending his son to die. The plan that was before the foundation of the world, what happened to Jesus was not some tragedy. What happened to Jesus was not some human strategy, but divine intervention. Who's responsible for the orchestration of the death of Christ on the cross? God the Father. God the Father is not only the one who planned it and designed it, but carried it out. God's pleasure is not so much in the suffering of his son, but the great success of what his son accomplished in dying. See, Jesus paid that righteous demand of God's holy wrath and justice. And so Spurgeon says on this text that this very text, Isaiah 53, takes us to the very heart of the human problem and the very heart of the divine mind. Why is it that God would send his only son to live under the shadow of the cross to then eventually die on the cross for our sins? What would motivate this plan that had been brought about even from the very moment that man sinned in the Garden of Eden? God had a plan that there was coming a day that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. What motivated this plan? Why didn't God just say, to hell with all of you, I'll start all over? Love. You know John 3, 16? Let's say it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved. Now, everyone, here's what I want you to do. When, when I get to the, world, to the word love, or to the word, to the word world, I want you to say your name. If you don't know your name, ask the person sitting next to you. They'll tell you. <laughs> All right, we're going to do this together. It's probably going to be weird, but we'll try it. For God so loved Alan that he marred 
despised, rejected, afflicted, wounded, oppressed, slaughtered, and crushed his only son for you, for you, and for you, and for me. How do you know God's will is satisfied? The resurrection. Jesus didn't die and stay dead. If Jesus is still dead, we have no hope. A dead savior is no one's savior. The incarnation and the crucifixion would mean nothing without the resurrection. So even 700 years prior to this moment, in verse 10, we see even the glimpses of the resurrection that he, after he has suffered for the sins of his people, will see his offspring. Jesus will receive the full reward of his suffering for those he was die, who he died to save. He will prolong his days. Since death is defeated, Jesus lives forever and the will of the Lord shall prosper. God's purposes will triumph in his hands. He who is dead is now alive, victorious forevermore. And so in verse 11, as a result of his anguish, he will see it and be satisfied. God's wrath against sin is satisfied. Those that were unrighteous are made righteous. God is satisfied and so we can be justified because the righteous demands were paid. Have you ever paid off anything? Paid off a car, paid off a house, paid off a kid? <laughs> we sold our house in DeBerry and thank God, and, and, and they sent us a letter in the mail. It said that your debt that you owed North Point Bank has been satisfied. It's been paid. Have a great day. And what that meant is that I, the debt that stood against me that I had to pay was now paid in full. It was satisfied. There, there's no more payments that I have to make. And so once I got that letter, once I knew the debt was paid, I stopped making payments, amen? How foolish would it be to continue to make payments on something I've already paid off? Be foolish, right? Well, listen, Jesus paid it all. And you don't have to make any more payments. You don't have to add to one thing Jesus did. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But if you, as one pastor said, if you add to what Jesus has done, you take Jesus out of everything. See, it's our rebellion that led to his rejection. But it's his substitution in my place, Jesus in my place, the heart of the gospel. I get salvation. See, that's the good news of great joy. That, that's the news that we sing about. That's why we get so excited this is the news that the angels announced to the shepherds. It was predicted by Isaiah, and it's been preached to you to this day. And here's the good news. The good news is that the God that we have rejected, the God that we have rebelled against, is the same God who sent Jesus, the same God who allowed his son to die in your place, the same God who raised him from the dead, is the same God who today on December the 19th, 2021, is still pursuing you. It's no accident you're here. God's been pursuing you all your life. But you will only receive this good news of great joy when you realize your need for it. And the Bible says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. You know, we began this message with one salvation story. I wanna end it with another, a greater one. On Tuesday this week, I had the privilege of meeting a lady named Hannah Lore. You'll see her picture. Hannah Lore came to our church because of her good friend, who you'll see in that red shirt, Dr. Ingrid Underwood, invited her. Dr. Ingrid is a newer believer, recently baptized in our church in October. Both Hannah Lore and Ingrid met each other in Ohio. What makes this relationship unique is they met in medical school. Hannah Lore was her mentor. Um, she's a midwife. But what made them even more closer is they're both from Germany. They've maintained a friendship for years. And Ingrid knew that Hannah Lore was going to come and visit her, even though the doctor said, because at her age, and she'd probably shoot me if I told you, her doctors didn't think it was a good idea. But yet Ingrid had been praying, and Hannah Lore came, and it was on Ingrid's heart to invite her to our church and to share the gospel with her. And so over the past week or so, uh, my wife, some ladies from our church, Maureen, Chris, and others have been working with Ingrid to share the gospel and love Hannah Lore. She's one of the most delightful ladies you'll ever meet. As a matter of fact, they, uh, they met with her on Monday and shared the gospel with her and she said to them repeatedly, I, I want to feel it, but I don't feel it. I, I know I'm not right with God, but I, I want to try. She grew up as a kid in the Lutheran church, and yet after her confirmation, she really never went to church much again. After she met with those ladies from our church, her and my, Dr. Ingrid and my wife, April, chatted and and, and said maybe she could meet with Pastor Allen. And so uh, on Tuesday, I met with, with, with Hannah Lore and Ingrid and my wife, and we met in my office, and we talked about all those wonderful things that those ladies that had been pouring into her. And, and Hannah Lore said, I want to be a Christian, but I know I'm not. And so we read that passage, John three sixteen. And when we got to that phrase, whosoever believes, I, I wanted to explain to her what that word belief meant. That word belief is not just an intellectual belief. It's not just an intellectual thought. That word belief literally could probably be best translated resting. And so I said, Hannah Lord, and I'll say this to everyone in this room, right now you are exhibiting belief. You are sitting in a chair and you are trusting that that chair will hold the weight of your body. And I said, that's what it means to believe in Jesus, to trust Jesus, to rest in Jesus with the whole weight of your sin to stop trying and to rest. I said, here's your options. You can squat in your own self-righteousness and you can sit here and say, I'm going to try to do better and I'm gonna try, but I don't feel better. I don't feel right. I don't feel rested. And the reason why you don't feel better is because you're squatting in your own self-righteousness. Or I said, Hannah Lord, you can sit down and plop down into the very grace of Jesus and that's where the feeling will come. You're not saved by feelings, you're saved by faith and what Christ has done. So like a light bulb, the Holy Spirit worked, clicked into her heart. She looked at me with eyes as big as saucers and says, I want to believe, I want to trust in Jesus. And so she prayed and gave her life to Jesus. 
at the sweet age of 90 years old, she said, as soon as she prayed, she said, I feel so happy. A heavy weight has been taken off my shoulders. It's real. I believe I'm so happy. Spoke to her after this. And she says, I'm still so happy. That's a greater salvation because it's one that money can't buy and death can't take away. And it's the reason that Jesus came on Christmas day. Now I want you to understand, I didn't save her and my wife didn't save her. We're not the heroes of this story. Those ladies that shared the gospel with her, they didn't save her, they were just being used by God. Jesus is who saved her. Corey Tim Boone said this. She said, if Jesus Christ had been born a thousand times in Bethlehem, but not in me, I would still be lost. May I say to you this morning that if you've never truly entrusted Jesus as your Savior, stop trying. Stop trying to feel like it. Stop trying to be a Christian. And would you just, as you're sitting in that chair, would you sit in the chair of God's grace and rest in Him today? It is no secret what God can do. What he's done for others, he'll do for you. And if you're here today and you wanna trust him as savior, you can. You don't need a preacher, you don't need a priest, you don't need anybody, all you need is Jesus. And so if you wanna trust him as your savior, I want everyone in this room right now, would you just bow your heads, close your eyes, and if you're here in this room and you want to trust Jesus as your savior, I'm gonna pray. And while I'm praying, you can ask Jesus just as you are, just where you are, to forgive you of your sins. Father, I pray for those in this room and those watching online, that your Holy Spirit would do work that I couldn't do. And Father, I pray that at this very moment, that the light bulb would click in the hearts and the minds of those that are here. And Father, would they in this very moment cry out to you in faith? And if you're here and you wanna trust Jesus, would you pray a prayer like this? Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I have lived for myself. And God, it is not working. But I believe, Jesus, you died to save me. I believe that you rose from the dead for me. And I ask you today that you would forgive me of my sins and save me in Jesus' name. If you prayed and trust Christ as your Savior, please let us know. Fill out one of those cards, come down to the end of the service, let us know, or go to the next steps here. We would love to help you in your walk of faith. Well, let's stand and let's sing this wonderful song of praise to our God. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church, Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.